Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. People sometimes ask about the big picture of our work. Why do we present these programs? The answer is we're trying to cultivate a more cohesive sense of community. And our vision of community is based on personal ideals and values, such as compassion, generosity, equality, and civility. We aim to serve the large and growing audience of people who seek a positive alternative to media negativity and exploitation. And we strive to shed light on solutions, not just problems. If you resonate with this vision, you can support us at humanmedia.org and click How You Can Help at the top of our homepage. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. She's just amazingly generous with her time, with her money, with her energy. And, you know, and just the fact that she's here for 35 years, that she started this with her husband, and that she's still involved day to day, you know, and seeing how gracious she is in working with people who are being very difficult um, is really amazing. The story of a woman who founded a Catholic worker soup kitchen and who has learned lessons about what compassion means. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. gentrified homes and posh restaurants of Boston's South End. A humble and extraordinary institution serves the community today as it has since 1966, when the neighborhood was better known as a scene of rundown properties, unsafe streets, and staggering drunkards. This room here is a soup kitchen room, and we serve homeless men from uh, about 6 a.m. till 9, and we serve anywhere from 60 to 120 homeless guys every morning and then in the afternoons three days a week Tuesday Thursday and Sunday we have an elder meal so people in the neighborhood um, over 55 come in and have a nice meal um, and that's really a lot of fun we have different church groups who come in and serve the meals so it's always a, it's a set group of people who rotate on the service and the, the crowd who comes in is very stable so it's a really nice it's a nice community event three days a week and these meals are provided free of charge? Yeah, all the meals are free of charge. And um, our food pantry is also open in conjunction with uh, the Tuesday elder meal because we were able to serve between 20 and 40 people every week um, with a bag or two bags of groceries. Um, nice stuff, so that works out really well. From modest beginnings in a basement apartment near the current location, Haley House has endured and blossomed. It was founded on a remarkable philosophy known as the Catholic Worker Movement, blending social service and personal spirituality. The movement originated among worker priests in Belgium and France and spread to the United States during the Great Depression. In the 1960s, it fired the imagination of Kathy McKenna, an idealistic student studying with Ursuline nuns at the College of New Rochelle, New York. 
there was a lot of um, emphasis on developing one's intellect, but also with this particular group of nuns, there was a big emphasis on service. And they were pretty inspiring to those of us who, who met them. And just being involved in it and, and being exposed to that kind of approach to life, which was, to me, an integrated approach, where you take your religious perspective, um, your beliefs, and you transform them into um, a way of perceiving your surrounding environment and how you were going to interact with it. This was a new experience for me. The Catholic worker movement approached social conditions like poverty, homelessness, and addiction as a community problem for which charitable people must take personal responsibility. So after moving to Boston, Kathy McKenna, along with a young school teacher who would later become her husband, embarked on a utopian adventure of service to the poor. We really liked the idea of welcoming people into our home rather than into something that was more like a... Uh, an operation. So we did. We, we, we were lucky. We got this little apartment, five cots in the front room. John slept in the middle one, and four guys slept around him. And I had a mattress in the, pa- in the pantry because we didn't have a lot of food. And, of course, the hardest part was getting, initially, was getting the guys to come because although Tremont Street was truly a skid row neighborhood, and every night when we went out walking, to invite people to come back. We were shocked that nobody accepted the invitation. I think they were afraid. Well, one night, John went out and, uh, and actually found someone who was unconscious in a snowbank and carried him home. So it was great. Tom woke up the next morning, got a great breakfast, got the royal treatment. You know, our first guest, we deluged him with all kinds of, you know, whatever we, we could muster. And of course, then he went out and, and spread the word. So from that point on, there was no, there was no other issue. We, were, we always had plenty of, uh, plenty of guests to stay. In very short order, the number of indigent people showing up overwhelmed the physical capacity of Kathy McKenna's tiny apartment. There was no paid staff, and grocery bills were paid primarily by John's salary from school. But in the face of growing need, the couple decided to expand their shoestring service to a larger storefront facility nearby, which they opened that year with financial support from sympathetic friends. We would have between 100 and 150 men squeezing into that space. Uh, And we were open from 7 o'clock in the morning until 9 o'clock at night, six days a week. And in the morning, we always had coffee usually had bread, and if we were very lucky, we had peanut butter. And when we served that, when people came in to eat that, they were incredibly grateful. And then at lunchtime, we'd have soup. And for many years in the early days, we were working with damaged cans, uh, unlabeled damaged cans that were donated. And we got very good at figuring out what was in an unlabeled can because there was always a price tag on them and when you shook it and you heard liquid if it was like expensive it was probably a stew if it was inexpensive it was probably a soup and if you shook it and there was no liquid it was either hash 
were dog food, and you couldn't tell until you opened it up. Until the mid-90s, Haley House performed its community service entirely through volunteers. Today, with help from loyal supporters, including some private foundations, a small staff draws modest salaries, and the remodeled cafeteria features attractive mahogany wood and two-pane windows. The bakery shop sells popular breads and pastries to neighborhood residents and some commercial vendors, with all proceeds supporting Haley's charitable activities. D.A. Ekstrom runs the bakery. We are very stocked refrigerator full of different things that we use in the soup kitchen and all our bakery supplies. Real tight space. Uh, and here we're dividing pizza dough. Um, this is the, or the organic uh, flour pizza dough that we do for the restaurant up in Harvard Square. And pretty soon we're going to be sheeting that out so that it's sheet pan sized. The philosophy of Haley House took some of its inspiration from the example of Dorothy Day, who died in 1980 at age 83. An impassioned journalist and social activist in New York, she was gradually attracted to Catholicism as the church of the immigrants serving the poor. Kathy McKenna. She had this heart connection to the church and made this conversion because of this pull inside of her. But now she saw that uh, her political, her radical political beliefs, as she had always considered herself an anarchist, were consonant with the teachings of this church that she had joined, which had promulgated all of these encyclicals for hundreds and hundreds of years that supported the very beliefs that she had for poor people and the working class, the rights of people to food and shelter were, were, were highly touted in these documents. And that this was very um, powerful for her and very motivating. During the Depression, Dorothy Day helped found the Catholic Worker newspaper. It was an overnight success, giving rise to hospitality houses for needy people across the United States. The paper espoused a personalist ideal, to serve the poor while living among them. And that was really the way in which Dorothy differentiated the Catholic worker from settlement houses of her day, that where, the, where those of means came and were somewhat lady bountifuls to helping those who were, who were in need and needy. It was perceived as condescending. Precisely. And very, and very, uh, and, and the classes were, were, were kept separate. I mean, the, the, often the women who would tend to the poor in the settlement houses would go back to their, to their wealthy homes and live their lives. And for, for Dorothy, and we believe this ourselves strongly, that if you wanted to serve the poor, that you needed to be in their midst and sharing your life with them in an intimate fashion. What appealed to you about that? It felt that if you were living your life in a, let's say, a suburban community or in a wealthy community, that, and there were people who were suffering on the streets of Boston, that if you came in and brought them sandwiches or 
you know, served them soup out of a out of a storefront, and then you went home to a comfortable life. That that was not a way of being present to their suffering. That was a way of taking care of their need, perhaps, more or less. But it wasn't. I, I know there's a great uh, quote from Eamon Hennessy, who was this kind of wild anarchist who hung around the Catholic worker. And he said, it isn't just about changing the world when I do, when I do what I do, but it's also about making sure that, that I don't get changed, that the world doesn't change me. Today at Haley House in Boston, the baker, D.A. Ekstrom, at age 28, represents a new generation drawn by the philosophy of spiritual service. He is studying the Buddhist path. I was really inspired by what they were doing. This is the first time that I've ever done anything in my life where it's like consciously trying to do something good. You know, I had just sort of, you know, I tr- I'd done work where I tried to avoid doing bad things, you know? Just uh, the basic, the, the Buddhist principle of right livelihood. Like, you don't want to do any harm in whatever you're doing. So I would avoid, I don't know, bartending or something like that where there's potential for doing harm, you know? Um, but I found that working here and seeing the differences that you make, even in a small way, in other people's lives and the contribution that you can make to people who are struggling to improve themselves. And just the, the I like the feeling that I got out of that. It really changed the way I was viewing my whole life. I'd been very self-centered and um, had a real small world. And when I started to work here, it kind of opened up. It got a little bit bigger. And I found that taking an interest in other people's lives really just improved the quality of my own life. In what ways? Um, I was a lot more relaxed about whether or not I was succeeding at anything. Personal difficulties are minimized through seeing what other people's difficulties are, to see, to see what other people have gone through and made it through and, and you know, improve themselves and come out on top. You know, people who have been on the streets, people who have been addicted to drugs. This is stuff that's not part of my experience growing up middle class in the Midwest. Um, it really, it kind of put my own problems of, you know, whatever, feeling lonely or, um, or useless or something like that, it kind of put it in perspective. It gave me a little bit of balance. Could you tell me a little bit about your background, how, how it is that you, you ended up here? Uh, using drugs and uh, just kept, eventually just get a toll on me and finally I said I got to do something in and out of jobs and um, so I made an initiative to make the first step trying to get out and trying to get housed and the help of these Healy House. Eric Grimshaw's trying to get his life back on track. Currently, he's a trainee at the Haley House Bakery, part of a job program that helps homeless people acquire practical skills. Working with people like Eric and serving guests of the soup kitchen has introduced D.A. Ekstrom, the baker, to a whole set of lessons about life. It sort of opened me up to the idea that, like, no matter how far down you go, you can always come back up, and that when you want to come back up, there are going to, you're going to find people who can support you and help you do that. You know, it's sort of like whatever you ask for, you're going to receive it. If you're asking for trouble, you're going to find trouble. If you're asking for help, you'll find help. And also that if you give, if you, if you make an effort and if you give, you're going to receive then in the same way, you know. 
It's kind of like a little teaching in karma, you know. What, what goes around comes around. Yeah, and you know, the more, the more, the more you, you give, the more you get. The principles that guide Haley House may strike some people as naive or misguided compassion. Over the years, many guests who line up and partake of the soup kitchen's generosity are people trapped in addiction or other patterns of self-destruction. They're often individuals who, for whatever reasons, have made bad choices in life. So it may be fair to ask whether supporting such people actually helps them or merely reinforces stubborn habits. Founder Kathy McKenna. That to me has been a constant question for everybody all along all the years of Haley House. I mean, what, you know, should you feed, clothe, and shelter those who, who are struggling with alcoholism or drug addiction? Or should you let them suffer? Hit their bottom. Yeah, well, I think they've probably already hit bottom when they're on the street, but let them suffer more so that they, you know, are forced to come to grips with their... And, of course, you know, because of the way that I've spent my life, my, my belief is that you need to be present to them even when they're on the bottom because it's more likely that somebody is going to choose to get better, to work on themselves if they believe that they're worth something. Almost always the reason a person chooses is to continue to sleep on the streets and drink themselves crazy is because they really believe that they're worthless. And what does it mean for you to be present to somebody who is in a situation that to most others would look pretty hopeless? Just to spend time with them. I mean, to, certainly to offer them basic necessities. I mean, we always say that the food that we offer our guests at Haley House is a vehicle, especially now in this city. It's not that difficult to find food. But what, we, what our purpose is in offering the meal, I mean, in the very same way that with a friend, you would choose to meet over a meal. Because when you're relating with each other and you're sharing your story and you're connecting, a meal can be part of it. It makes it a warmer experience. And it's the same thing with Meals in the Soup Kitchen. Our goal is to develop relationships, and, and the food is a vehicle for that. From the beginning, Haley House has offered not just food, but also shelter to people on the streets, and has done so in the Catholic worker tradition of personal involvement. That has meant taking risks with people who have a history of getting into trouble. Kathy McKenna. Our goal was, of course, for them to come and live with us, not for this to be transitional housing or a halfway house or a program. They moved in and they were considered part of our extended family. And indeed, I mean, Dick Powers, who lived with us for, for a number of years, would come down and read stories to, to our kids when they were little. And uh, one, of, one of the biggest difficulties when our kids were little was when Dick would, would go out on a drunk. Because here was this guy who was this sweet, mild-mannered uh, Uncle Dick. And all of a sudden, he was drunk. And of course, when the guys would drink, we would take their keys and they'd have to go out. And when they were finished drinking, they could come back. 
because it was much too dangerous to have someone who was in the house drinking, especially smoking, etc. With little kids? With little kids and grown-ups too. <laughs> so uh, that was very, very difficult because Dick would come back and sleep between the front doors there and Tamara would, uh, would see him. And of course he was a mess. And that was your daughter? Yeah. That was, that's her oldest daughter. And it was, it was a little, it was traumatic. It was hard to explain to a four-year-old why we were asking, you know, Dick to leave on a cold winter's night. But Ed was, was also one of those early, early guys. And Ed uh, was a merchant seaman, a talented carpenter, and a wild man. And he came in and, and stayed with us for a while, but his drinking didn't abate at all. I mean, he would, he would be sober and, 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 and great, but then he'd go on a tear, and he'd really go on a tear. So eventually we decided that he couldn't stay, that it was too much. We weren't helping him. He was, I mean, it was great that whenever he broke windows, he, when he got sober, he'd fix them, but the breaking of the windows was becoming more problem than the fact that they would be fixed when he got sober. So we had to ask Ed to leave. But what happened was... Years later, he got what we call the alcoholic's disease, which is frostbite. He, um, he lost some toes one winter. And he had been on the street now, and from our knowledge, maybe 20 years. And we had kept in touch and did all of our cajoling and, and battling with him. He came in, he, he called us from the hospital. We had visited him. And he said, do you think it would be okay if I came and stayed while I recuperate? We thought to ourselves, well, in a way, that's no problem because he can't go out and get a jug, which was the usual way it started um, before it went downhill. So we said, okay, you know, that, that, that will make sense. Why don't you come on here and we can, you know, give you a nice warm space while you recuperate. And the fact is, he just never, as he recounted years later, he just never desired a drink again. So he stayed with us and recuperated, and then he started, as he got better, he started doing odd jobs around the house because he's an incredibly talented handyman and just became part of the community. Where did you stay last night? I'm staying in a shelter over in Cambridge. So is it hard waiting in line to find more permanent housing? It is, but you got, I guess you got to understand, you know, the circumstances, you know. I, I'm not the only one out there waiting to get into housing. There's people that have more priority than myself. So it's just a waiting game, and, you know, when my turn comes, I'll uh, get, get my housing. Actually, I, um, I, I'm probably at the top of the list, but I got denied, so now i got to go to an appeal. Why was it denied? Because of my Corey record, criminal record. I guess if somebody doesn't know me, you know, know me as a person, and they just look at a piece of paper and they see what's on the paper, I guess it, it can be, you know, they say, oh, look at this. You know, they don't know me personally, so they just judge me by what's on the paper, not, not me as a person. Through a lot of effort and a lot of time and energy, we purchased and renovated two buildings on Columbus Avenue which are single rooms for, and they're subsidized with government money, McKinney funds, so that a person who is homeless can move in there and pay only one-third of his or her income for rent. 
Kathy McKenna. For example, we have a fellow who was a, was a guest in the soup kitchen for 20 years. And one day he, when, when we had some guys helping out, he noticed this. He had, he had been coming in every day, reading, playing chess, quiet guy. Came up to me once and said, you know, Kathy, life hasn't been very good to me. But I haven't been very good to life either. Do you think it would be okay if I volunteered here? So he did. He did that for a few months. Religiously, with discipline, came in every day and did dishes. While others came in and sat down and did nothing. Um, But eventually, this fellow felt so good about himself that he went out and got himself a job. Now, it's only selling papers on a street corner, but it gives him $25 a week, probably more now. And with that, he had an income, and we could get him a room. So here's somebody who had been in a shelter for over 20 years and now has a room, has a part-time job, comes every Sunday to do the dishes because he said it's his way of remembering and of paying back. Now, it wouldn't have been enough for us just to be a friend of his coming into the soup kitchen. I mean, part of what we, we, we can offer some folks is housing, but also part of what we offer some guys is the opportunity to volunteer. That's a really important step that happened with this gentleman because, you know, it isn't just us who kind of, you know, have our lives all set up and want to give from our abundance but it's people who have very little who also need to give and to offer their services to others. A lot of the guests will come in and get their meals here, but then they'll also start to help out because they see what we're doing here. They're kind of inspired by what we're doing here. DA Extra. And it's amazing how open and friendly and giving the people are who are, you know, who essentially have nothing in terms of physical things. You know, they don't have any money, they don't have a home, they don't have a lot of material possessions, but they're the most the most giving people that I've ever met in terms of giving a smile, saying hello, asking how you're doing, making comments, making small talk, whatever, giving out their cigarettes to other people who who don't have cigarettes, you know. So what do you make of the personal generosity of people who basically have nothing? I think that they're, they've co- they have nothing, so they're coming from a position where they understand what it is to have nothing. So they have a level of compassion for people who are in need that people who have something and who have never experienced that don't have. My personal motivation for being here is to, because I have the opportunity to give and to grow through that um, and to help people who are in need is on, on a very direct level. What they choose to do with what they receive here is their business. It's great if they then become more generous and helpful, but they might not. I mean, there's, there's a lot of successes here, but there's also a lot of, a lot of people who continue to fail. Um, you know, and that's a hard thing, but you, know, you just keep, keep doing what you're going to be doing regardless of what the outcome is. Does it frustrate you to watch that? Yeah. Yeah, it's frustrating to watch somebody who starts to come back up on their feet, then fall back. And, you know, the reasons that people fall back and that are very complicated, it's a lot of 
personal things it's a lot of psychological things so you know you just kind of think sometimes you think maybe we weren't able to give as much as we could have and that's what kept this person from succeeding here or you think well they just weren't ready to succeed or this isn't just what's going to happen but it's it's kind of like you sit there and you think about it and you, you if you come up with an answer you still think well that maybe that's not really the answer you know maybe I'm just trying to satisfy my mind maybe I'm just trying to make myself feel a little bit better so that's kind of tough Baker D.A. Ekstrom at Haley House in Boston You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with The Network Incorporated. Studio recording by Steve Colby. Editorial assistance from Francis McGovern. Program development and support provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This is Humankind program number 52 on Haley House. Thanks very much for listening. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.